Hi, everyone. Welcome to Podcast is a Seven-Letter Word. I'm Adam Abrams, partner at Seven Letter. And I'm New Wexler, also a partner at Seven Letter. This is Podcast is a Seven-Letter Word. We're excited to be joined today by New York Times reporter and best-selling author Jonathan Martin. Jonathan, thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me, guys. Before we begin, maybe I'll do a quick bio on Jonathan for those who may not know him. Jonathan Martin is a senior political correspondent for the New York Times, a political analyst for CNN, and as I mentioned, the co-author of the New York Times bestseller, This Will Not Pass, Trump, Biden, and the Battle for America's Future. Uh, Jonathan has spent more than a decade at the Times. Prior to that, he was a senior political writer for Politico and National Journal, uh, among others. His work has been featured in the New, York, the New Republic, <coughs> National Review, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and elsewhere. Jonathan, welcome. Thanks for having me, guys. So we want to talk a little bit about the book. We want to talk a little bit about politics today. Obviously, there's a lot uh, happening in the world today. Um, but um, maybe let's just begin with congrats on the book, New York Times bestseller. Um, you've told us in our conversations that writing a book is different than writing a news story. Yeah. Uh, in fact, you've talked about how the fact that it was for a book impacted how much and the ways in which sources would share information with yeah. you. Um, I think you said something in the fact of knowing this was for history changed how people reacted. There is something about these times where the political actors recognize that they're, they're living through really consequential moments that future historians are going to study this period. And I think that makes them more conscious of what they're doing, what their colleagues are doing. And I think it made it easier for Alex and I to write this book because people wanted to have their say uh, in a, a comprehensive way, in a book that we hope, and I think a lot of them uh, we're interviewing believe is going to be sort of the building blocks uh, or part of the building blocks for, for future historians who are looking back on this extraordinary moment in American democracy. And, and I was going to start with the most historical moment possibly of January 6th, but maybe it, I'll go rewind a little bit further um, and just let you say a little bit about how you approached this book, because it wasn't a campaign retelling, right? It was uh, the story of a consequential phase in the beginning of this administration, but everything that led up to it was part of it. Yeah. So this was different than a lot of campaign books because it wasn't a campaign book. And uh, it also wasn't a Trump book, so it's kind of a genre-bending uh, book, but I think it's best understood as an account of this tumultuous period in American politics, 2020 and 21. So yes, it takes in the campaign, but it also captures the full aftermath of the campaign and how Trump refusing to concede and how January 6th has shaped both parties. And it's also an account of the first year of Biden's presidency. This is the first real book uh, on Joe Biden's presidency. Uh, and so, it, it, yes, it includes Trump. Yes, it includes the campaign, but it's bigger uh, than, than that. And uh, we kind of liken it to sort of the first draft uh, of history um, of this period, 2020 and 21. Both guys, we, we just didn't want to rush a book out. Uh, on the campaign uh, or on the sort of aftermath of the campaign, not really capture the entirety of, of what took place after. You know, we didn't want to make January 6th a kind of hurried and tacked on 
epilogue that was clearly thrown in there uh, at the deadline. Uh, we thought, and I think uh, that events have um, uh, have indicated our, our assessment that you know one six is a central moment here, as significant as the campaign itself. Yeah, and what and what's turned out to be is basically the first accounting of the first half of the administration. Um, That's right. Which which I think is fascinating because as many of your competitors were racing to finish the definitive story of what happened on the campaign trail, you guys found a way to talk about uh, why that was important. Um, so I think that that was one of the things that struck me about the book is that it wasn't told between as a way of, um, you know, the, the meetings that were so consequential into who went to which battleground state, but right. uh, the impact yeah. of, of Biden's victory uh, and then Trump's reaction to it uh, which we're all kind of dealing with. Yeah, and like, we really felt as though the book had to meet the moment. And by that, I mean, you know, we had to go bigger and broader than just, you know, page after page of kind of staff level fighting or rivalries. You know, we have some of that, but it was really our mission to sort of capture the bigness of these times we're talking about the health of American democracy. We're talking about the transfer of power. Um, you know, things that we've taken for granted for so many years, covering politics, working in politics, in your guys' case. And you couldn't take those things for granted uh, this time around. And so I think it was our mission to, to get at uh, the more profound elements uh, of these times beyond, you know, uh, are we going to buy 10,000, uh, you know, points of TV in Tampa or Orlando? Right. Right. And, and maybe January 6th uh, is the most pivotal sort of tent yeah. in, that, in that history. So I'm interested in your perspective about how it fits into history, knowing that this isn't finished yet. Obviously, the, the, there's a committee in Congress that's not wrapped up its work. And no. but maybe more significantly, you were in the Capitol. Um, and you capture both specific, sometimes visceral, sometimes premonitions uh, about the day. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, so I just wanted, what can you tell us from your writing and about what's happened that puts January 6th in history, in its place in history? Well, yeah, what was striking about the 6th is how many members of Congress you know, did have a sense for what was about to happen. There was this sort of ominous this ominous uh, feeling um, among so many members of Congress uh, about that day because they knew that Trump had summoned all, all these people to the mall. So it wasn't a huge surprise. You know, we have this scene early in the morning of the 6th. Jason Crow, who's a, a House Democrat from Colorado, gets into a verbal sort of disagreement with Mark Wayne Mullen, who's a Republican from Oklahoma, talking about what could happen that day. And, you know, it turns out that um, you know, Crow was was prophetic. Uh, I was in the Senate chamber uh, when the Capitol was breached. Uh, I was in the gallery overlooking the floor of the Senate. And thank God they told us to go to the basement uh, when they evacuated the Senate. And that's where I met up with all these senators who, as you guys know, is, is not a very young demographic, uh, moving very rapidly uh, through uh through the basement, the, the images that you've seen of Josh Hawley, uh, he was not alone and sort of moving swiftly. 
And I just followed that herd. And uh, uh, we wound up at heart in, in, in a huge conference room. And that's where the Senate was the rest of the day. Just out of curiosity, um, were you, uh, did you just decide to cover, to to come to the Hill that day? Were you, yeah, it's a good question. Were you assigned by your editors? What, what, yeah, what? it's a good question. No, I just wanted to be there. I, I had been in Georgia the previous day for, because, you know, at that point, January 5th was going to be the important day because that's when yep. the, the runoffs were for control of the Senate in Georgia. So I caught the last plane, the last plane back from Atlanta uh, on the fifth uh, back to DCA. It's memorable because it's a really rowdy crew on the flight, and this is the height of COVID. They didn't want to wear their masks. A lot of they're drinking, and I was like, "Look, this is not a Vegas flight. This is <laughs> this is Atlanta to DCA. It usually isn't like this." And so I kind of got a sense for what what the vibe was going to be on the mall the next day, but obviously they never thought. Uh, that we'd see a scene like what we did in the Capitol. Uh, but I knew that, just even symbolically knew, I, I knew that it was going to be an important day in the Capitol um, because of the, the 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 ratification of the Electoral College and Pence being there, presiding over the Congress. I wanted to be there. I, and obviously, it was, I was there to witness history. Um, what was so striking... Uh, about coming back that night is you can't overestimate the amount of firepower that those senators were surrounded with. I mean, there was FBI, National Guard, uh, Secret Service, every law enforcement branch uh, guarding the senator as they went back. And over the course of the afternoon, you could see the weaponry uh, being upgraded over the course of the hours. Uh, And eventually they're carrying machine guns around the heart building. Uh, which you just obviously don't see very often. Um, so it was a it was an extraordinary day. And look, I think a lot of um, members of the GOP thought that this was going to be it for Trump. You know, it reminds me, just for straight political reasons at least, a, a lot like the Access Hollywood uh, period, where there was that 24 to 48 hour period where there's this view of, well, this is it. There's just no way he can survive this one, right? And I think that assumption about what voters do and don't care about uh, has now bitten the Republicans a couple of times, right? Um, including on the sixth. Yeah, it certainly gave us the uh, the famous "count me out" speech. Yeah, and Lindsey Graham has since said he he was talking sort of narrowly about uh, about challenging the election, but obviously, uh, I think there were uh, the hope was. On the part of a lot of Republicans, well, this is finally it. Yeah, we can now move on from Trump. You know, McConnell told me that that night, late that night, leaving the Capitol. Uh, you know, Trump has put a gun to his head and pulled the trigger, and he's totally discredited now. And I, you know, that was not just his view; that was the view of a lot of Republicans. Of uh, this guy incited a riot in the U.S. Capitol. But again, I think that that, that under underestimates the tribalism that shapes American politics today. You know, we get asked a lot about the title of the book. This will not pass. And it can be applied a bunch of different ways. Uh, for a while, the joke was it was about Biden's domestic agenda, uh, but obviously he's uh, got the last laugh there. Um, but, you know, I think what we're getting at with the title of this will not pass is, you know, this tribalism that's shaping American politics is not going away. Uh, it's not like, you know, Biden's election caused this, you know, new dawn and of, uh, conciliation in American politics. We're still fighting 
the, these nasty battles and uh, people are still shaped entirely by their contempt for the opposition. And the Republican Party is still largely in thrall to Trump and Trumpism. Yep. And your the title, This Will Not Pass, is a good segue into what I was going to ask as the next question. Um, but it's it's just a, a what, one of the things that I think about um, with uh, the, the Trump era and, and January 6th is, you know, why why are these stories uh, not over yet? Sometimes it, you, you know, when you watch like a news cycle, it feels like 2016 or 2020 just repeating itself. Um, is, is this like a larger social issue or is this what, what do you think causes that? Yeah, I think that uh, I think that we're returning now to a more 19th century version of politics, much more polarized partisanship, uh, increasingly shaped by identity, um, you know, disdain for the opposition, being a much more powerful motivator than, you know, enthusiasm for for, for your side. Um, more partisan news outlets, uh, an ability to sort of pick your own adventure when it comes to news and events. I mean, we've all lived through these times before, uh, at least our forefathers have. It's just that it hasn't happened in recent years, right? I think the post-war sort of media and cultural consensus has given away, and we're in a more fractured and polarized environment now. Um, you know, we, we had this politics. I don't want to get too wonky here, uh, but like, you know, we had a politics that was much more um, uh, complicated and complex. You had moderate uh, Democrats and Republicans. You even had liberal Republicans. You had conservative Democrats. And I, uh, I always say about Manchin, what people don't understand about Manchin, and I think the reason that people are so frustrated about Manchin on the left and they don't fully get him on the right or the left is because he's a, he's a unicorn. Right. And there used to be a lot of Joe Manchins uh, where the Senate had people who were more shaped by region or generation and the alliances were shifting based upon the issue. It was a more complicated moment. And um, it's now less. It's red and blue. Right. I mean, you have zero Democrats voting to oppose the IRA and you have zero Republicans supporting it. Um, you know, the Supreme Court confirmation process has basically become a tribal marker too. It used to not be. I mean, you can just go, go down the roster of, of issues and you can see how politics has now changed, right? Um, and uh, in fact, it's funny, uh, in the book, we have uh, a section about the Obama and, uh, and Biden tensions, which is timely given the former president's recent trip to the White House for his uh, portrait unveiling. Uh, you know, one of the things that Obama would complain in private about uh, when when there was this glowing coverage of, of Biden is, you know, when I was president, we had a lot more Joe Manchins. Uh, and what what Obama meant by that is, you know, he, even as recently as 2009, the Senate Democratic Caucus was a more complicated body. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, you had Southern Democrats who were moderate, um, who were you know, not reliable votes. Um Figures like Ben Nelson from a place like Nebraska, uh, which is hard to comprehend a Democrat being elected to federal office from there now. And so, you know, Obama, you said, look, it, it was tougher for me. You know, Joe, Joe has one mansion and one cinema now. And, you know, I had a lot more. Yeah. When I tell people that my first two uh, bosses on Capitol Hill were from Louisiana and South Carolina, 
Um, most folks, I think, under the age of 40 uh, assume I'm a Republican. Sure. And um, it, it was just a different place back then. You know, it was still, you still had a lot of Southern Republicans, right. but the uh, but the votes were a lot of times split along uh, regional and, and rural lines. Absolutely. And if you look at now who's able to defy these, uh, these rules, uh, Collins of Maine, Mansion of West Virginia, um, Tester in Montana, you know, all three of those states have in common. They're small states population wise. And if you have the ability to create your own identity among enough voters of a small state like that, like Montana, Maine and West Virginia, you can survive the national trends like they have. Um, it's it, it, it sort of hard to see elsewhere. Um, and, you know, this has been the story of the last 10, 12 years of American politics is, you know, people who have thought they could ride out those trends or defy those trends who are, who are caught up in them. Um, politics is just now so nationalized. And you put in the book, I mean, the like the morning of the 6th, you know, you have all these anecdotes of people, um, you know, Abigail Spanberger, who, yeah. you know, her spidey sense was, was, was tingling right i mean not yeah. that it was her cia training um and you know andy kim and but you also have joe manchin who's in line to get his covid shot and yeah. he's excited because he thinks he's going to uh sort of preside over an era of bipartisanship or not yeah. an era of bipartisanship but maybe achieve some bipartisan yeah. wins um and i think that's interesting because you know you mentioned at the top of our conversation right like some of what you uh, what you tried to capture in the book has sort of borne out to be true. I mean, that's one of them is Manchin is playing a long game here. Um, he knew what he wanted. Yeah, no. And uh, this was one of the most interesting parts about covering the first year of the Biden presidency. When you have a 50-50 Senate uh, like he did, um, it really empowers individuals who want to be deal makers, and goodness knows Mansion has taken full advantage of that. And uh, it's like you know, it's fascinating. And you know, one of the things we enjoy about doing uh, in the book and having the freedom uh, and the space uh, to capture um, uh, some of these people is you know, doing these kind of mini biographies and sort of character sketches. And I think one of the issues about Mansion that's misunderstood, and I think New will know this from being on the Senate. Like he's not sort of this like, you know, coal baron who's plotting uh, his every move based upon, um, you know, the interest of his ties to the industry. You know, it's much less sinister than that. Um, he's a guy who wants to be everybody's buddy, who likes to get along in the Senate, who really wants to make the Senate worked like it used to, who also recognizes that he comes from a very conservative state, um, but is at heart an old school sort of Kennedy Democrat. And um, uh, he's mostly obsessed about process, to tell you the truth. Um, you know, uh, he, uh, he was just so emphatic about bipartisanship. And I think part of the reason why it was hard for him to get to yes um, on what became known as the IRA was because it wasn't bipartisan. I think Manchin's, you know, view of the, the Senate working is, you know, he and 
10 other, you know, members from both parties getting together over dinner, or at least in Murkowski's house and putting together a compromise package on fill in the blank issue. That's what he wants to do. That That's what he thinks is important. Um, I think that wasn't always captured in the coverage, but that's really who, who, who Manchin is. And, um, uh, you know, there's times where he's making it up as he goes and it's not really sure where he's going to be uh, one day to the next. Um, but it's not calculated. It's just sort of Manchin being Manchin, you know. I, it's so interesting. And I, if I can shift gears slightly, because yeah. um, just like going a little bit bigger picture, I was struck by something else at the beginning of the book. Uh, uh, the truth, you know, sort of has taken a few body blows, as you know, in the last few years, partly yeah. because of the former president, but just yeah. the way things have changed. But you don't mince words in the beginning of the book. Um, you know, you wrote delusions about a stolen election and the fictions that inspired a riot. So these are things that I accept as true. Most people do. Um, and yet your job is to capture the first draft of history for the times and possibly broader view of history for the book. So yeah. not to get too sort of dark, but if not everyone accepts the same basic reality, yeah. how can we move past this sort of turbulent era? Um, yeah. I mean, to the paraphrase that. Right. Paraphrase another man of the Senate, uh, Pat Moynihan. Um, everybody's entitled to their own opinions, but not their own facts. And unfortunately, I feel like that maxim does not apply as much as it did in Moynihan's day because a lot of Americans uh, want to embrace their own version of reality. And because we now live in this fragmented information environment, they're they're able to. No, it's really it's really problematic. It's hard to sustain. A democracy when you can't agree on shared facts. That is an enormous challenge that we're that we're facing here um, as a country. And, and there's no question that part of the um, the cancer that is now spreading in, in the electorate um, is because people are bought in uh, to a total lie about the 2020 election. Um, and you've got responsible people who know it's a lie, who, will, who won't say as much because either they want to move on entirely or because they're scared of the former president. And, um, you know, we're asked all the time, Alex and I are, I'm, I'm talking about the book, you know, what's the good news? What's, what's the happy ending here? I don't have a lot of good news in the short term. I think the polarization, the toxicity gets worse here or gets better. Um, I don't know how we can come out of this. I worry about, you know, if a pandemic couldn't bring folks together, what can? Uh, and that, that was sort of one of the tragedies about the pandemic beyond the loss of life was not only didn't it, didn't it uh, uh, you know, stop the sort of raging fire, it sort of exacerbated the fire of our polarization. It was just more fodder, uh, you know, masking and vaccines. It immediately was sort of caught up in culture wars and, political identity um it's really troubling and um there there's no uh there is no no easy answer here which is why we call the book this will not pass yeah jonathan one of the things i really liked about the book is that it went beyond the daily you know trump stories and scandals and mar-a-lago gossip yeah. and looked at how congress and the parties are responding to him after all yeah. these institutions will be around uh, a lot a, a lot longer than he will right. um do you think that they've changed permanently or is there a chance that they gradually shift back to what they were 10 or 20 years ago or even maybe six years ago? 
Yeah, I don't think that we're going to see institutions go back to what they were. I mean, I I do wonder. Look, new the point of political parties is to win. So if we're talking about the Republican Party, and there's an honest assessment of the former president. You know, he's lost the presidency, the House, the Senate, and potentially could deny his party from winning the Senate back this time around. That, that's not a great track record for somebody who claims to be an unalloyed winner. Um, and so, you know, does that lead some people in the party to make a sort of cold-eyed decision about, about him? I don't think the Republicans are going to go back to being a Bush party, uh, uh, even even if Trump is sort of uh, cast aside eventually or, you know, fades um, on his own. Um, I think they're still going to have some of that Trumpian DNA in them. Uh, but clearly, um, you know, Republicans are going to have to decide if this brand Trumpism is a loser in general elections, then we got to find some other option. I, I think knew they have put off a reckoning because that's hard you know like <laughs> uh, you know confronting a former president who's got a grip on millions of people who craves the spotlight is not an easy thing to do um yeah um and i they hope the kind of midterms could paper over their issues because you can just run on uh you know a referendum against the party in power but that's proved difficult uh, in large part because the former president won't go away so i think in some ways, if they don't have as good of a midterm as they were hoping, it may sort of force the kind of referendum on Trump that, that you're talking about. Um, I'll say this, I mean, you know, Mitch McConnell had a chance in February of 2021 to f- try to find the 17 Senate Republicans to convict Trump and bar him from running for office, which would have, you know, politically neutered him uh, in the long term. And McConnell, had concerns about the constitutionality of convicting somebody uh, out of office. But I think there were also political considerations there. And if you do condemn Trump in that fashion, you find the 17 votes to convict, does Trump then just torpedo not only the midterms, but like the party for as long as he lives uh, out of revenge? I think that's possible. But here's the, the great irony of that new is, if the, you know, if this midterm doesn't go as planned for Republicans, Trump still may have done that, right? So you pull off confronting Trump in, in February of 21, in part because you don't want to have him wreck the midterms, and you still may have a midterm debacle uh, because uh, of Trump, because you did not confront him. He squeezed the party even, even further and helped determine a lot of his primaries, which could lead to ruin in the general election. I mean, I mean, speaking of reckonings, I mean, that's a question McConnell's gonna have to really think about after after the midterms, you know? Um, Would he have been better off confronting Trump after January 6th instead of putting it off? But this has been, putting McConnell aside, dude, this has been the recurring story for seven years now. The Georgia Georgia runoffs, you know, that was the question too. And they sort of punted on that. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think for seven years, leading Republicans have waited for somebody else to, to confront Donald Trump or hoped he'll just go away. And that's not been a winning strategy, you know? I think, you know, without um, 
this isn't a spoiler to say this, the yep. book ends right around the time that uh, President Biden's about to experience his lowest approval ratings. Yeah. Um, and though they're climbing back now and the White House has had a, a really great run of, of significant success, um, based on your reporting on the White House and Congress, what do you think changed in that period, sort of where the book ends and this great, for them, summer? Largely events out of Biden's direct control, right? Um, if you think about the, the factors that have helped the Democratic Party's recovery, it's largely been people not named Joe Biden, right? It's been Donald Trump, the Supreme Court, uh, the marketplace when it comes to, to the price of gas, um, the one six committee. Um, I mean, I think those forces uh, have, have been have been key in, in reviving democratic fortunes. And I think when you to take up the issue of and the one other other institution that I didn't mention is Joe Manchin and the US Senate. Uh, Biden said openly he had to talk to Manchin. Look, um, Biden obviously signed the bill, but when it comes to bringing Manchin back into the fold, you have to give Schumer credit for that. Um, and so I think Biden learned a lesson about not trying to be, to borrow one of his words, Senator President, um, and sort of letting, letting Manchin work with Schumer and sort of come to yes, uh, was the key to that. Um, look, we, we saw this quite a bit when Trump was president. When Trump was the story, when Trump was the headline, it usually was bad news for the Republicans. And I think it's the same with Biden, right? When Biden's not the story, when the story is abortion rights or Trump or one six, um, things tend to go better for Joe Biden, right? And that's, I think, difficult for anyone else to swallow. You don't want to be a bystander uh, president. But the fact is we're in an era of negative uh, polarization or negative partisanship, I, I should say. Um, and people tend to focus more on the shortcomings of the opposition than the, the virtues of their own side. And I think because of that, it's just where we are. When there's bad news from the other side uh, or the perception of bad news from the other side, it tends to help your side more, right? Yeah, and then uh, one thing that I, that I uh, point out is in 2016, when, when Trump closed strong in the last few weeks, it also coincided with that period where um, where his I don't know if his staff took his phone, but he was clearly there, there was this window where, where Trump would tweet in like 2016. And you could tell whether it was a staff tweet or a, a Trump tweet. And yeah. um, and his numbers started to move up at the end, uh, like through Election Day, because for like the last three weeks, he wasn't doing that. It's no, it's incredible how the numbers do tend to fluctuate when when he's uh, at the center of the story. And obviously, and, and I think the reason why it reminds soft Republicans and independent voters of why they can't swallow the Republican Party, because they they just are reminded of uh, the, the perception of extremism or instability. Right. Um, uh, that said, how do you tell a president, you know, <laughs> like go overseas for a couple of weeks or you know maybe just uh you know stay in Rehoboth for, for, for the rest of the midterms right I mean it's not an option um he obviously is the president but but boy uh 
has he benefited from Trump being back at the center uh, of attention? I, I was so struck by the McConnell statement the other day when, when McConnell was dodging the question from the congressional reporters about the Mar-a-Lago raid. McConnell's way of doing no comment was to sort of gently stick a knife in Trump by saying, I have no comment on the story that we've all been watching unfold uh, <laughs> for the last month in the news. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and and speaking of that, and this is um, we can we can close on on this note is um, you know how do you see all of all of these events that you've covered in the book? Yeah. You know how do you see them impacting um, the midterms as we come down the home stretch? I I think there are two things at work here. One is the the, the endurance, not just Trump, but kind of Trumpism and this demand side. Um, uh, challenge that Republicans have in which 40, 40 plus percent of their primary voters want a Trumpian candidate for office has, you know, thrust forward general election nominees for governor, for Senate and, and in the House who have made races a lot more competitive than we thought they were going to be in a midterm election, which typically favors the party out of power. That's the obvious way. I think you also have to take in the larger structural factors too. And that is, you know, the, the American voter is discontent right now. There is a sort of scratchiness post COVID with the supply chain issues, with inflation still lingering. Yes, gas prices have come down, but the American voter, and you can capture this in the right track, wrong track question, is pretty dyspeptic. And when that's the case, they tend to take that out on the party in power. So look, uh, I think it's pretty clear that um, polarization and the nature of the Republicans being nominated uh, is going to make it difficult for Republicans to have a kind of 1994 or even 2010 style wave. Um, they're just too flawed of an opposition party to enjoy that. Um, but at the same time, I, I think it's difficult to see a scenario where Republicans don't tend to, um, you know, fare somewhat better than it may look uh, at the at sort of end of summer or start of fall, just simply because uh, people in this country are pretty grumpy right now, and they tend to take that out in the party in power. So, uh, and and I think you can you can sort of if you, you know read, read this book, you can see why people are are unhappy. Right, yeah. it's been the tumultuous few years, and people are sort of craving uh, a return to normalcy. Uh, and obviously, we have not gotten that yet. Uh, this has not passed. Right. As you wrote. Um, well, so here at Seven Letter, uh, you know, we love words. Obviously, our name, uh, Seven Letters, yeah. is a bit of wordplay. So one thing before we let you go, we have to ask, we ask all of our guests, what is your favorite seven letter word? Yeah, gosh, that's tough. Seven letters is, is tough. <laughs> um, I can give you a five letter word. Betsy, it's my wife. There you go. <laughs> I was hoping for something related to LSU. Yeah. <laughs> Not after that opener, man. Brian <laughs> Kelly is, is more of sorry a, is about more, that. It's more of a four-letter word exactly at this point right now. Yeah. So <laughs> all right, fellas. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, this is Adam Abrams on behalf of New Wexler for Seven Letter and Podcast is a seven-letter word. Uh, you can listen to all of our podcasts on 
Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you listen to content, which is one of our favorite seven-letter words. Thanks for joining us today.